Welcome to Trade Policy Decoded, a podcast that shines a light on what's happening in trade policy in Australia and around the world. Brought to you by the University of Adelaide's Institute for International Trade and the Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment. Your hosts are Professor Peter Draper and Dr. Prue Gordon. Hello, Peter. Good morning, Prue, or good afternoon, I should say. I'm in Germany, so it's morning for me. So you're in Germany and I hear it's like minus two when I'm in Canberra and it's about 35 degrees. So some real extremes in temperature, hopefully not extremes in views for this hour. I think this is our seventh podcast. Yeah, so no, we'll, we'll try to keep it relatively tame, <laughs> but the issues we're dealing with, I think, are interesting and challenging. Yes, true to our word, the focus for the podcast this week is values-based trade policy. And we've said in prior podcasts, so the podcast on the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework and on the EU-Australia trade relationship, values was a real topic in both of those podcasts, and we promised to come back to it. So we are, but also the Institute of International Trade is engaged in a collaboration on a research project focusing on this issue of values-based trade and due diligence legislation. So it's a fantastic opportunity to look at the research that you're doing. And the reason you're in Germany is because you're working with your collaborators there. But we also have a special guest joining us. It's the first time Trade Policy Decoded has had a special guest. We've got Dr. Nisha McDonnell from Edith Cowan University joining us today. Hello, Nisha. Hello, Prue. It's a pleasure to be here. It's fantastic to have you join us for this podcast. I might start with the actual project that you're working on. So what is Value-Based Trade Project all about? So the project is a two-year one funded by Universities Australia and the German Academic Scientific Exchange. What motivated it was our German partners' interest, and I should say also some concerns, about how far the values-based trade slash due diligence envelope is being pushed in Europe. So I think we start from a place where we all subscribe to various values that constitute the broader level playing field agenda. But when it comes to translating those values into how companies, multinational companies particularly, but not only, should manage their supply chains, it rapidly gets very complex. And so an example of this is Australia's Modern Slavery Act, but we've also been reviewing other legislative and regulatory framings, uh, particularly the German supply chain law and also the EU's supply chain due diligence law. And our particular focus is on human rights considerations, so the human rights aspects of sustainability and the level playing field. And we're most interested in trying to understand what kind of trade-offs this fairly broad-based OECD effort to embed values in supply chains poses, uh, both for the country and the firms in the country, so German multinationals and particularly the German Mittelstand, uh, the medium-sized companies that are the bedrock of German industry. But we're also interested in how it impacts on developing countries in which these firms invest and the kinds of 
policy reactions that might give rise to. So this raises the economics concept of trade-offs, and there are many trade-offs involved in this. So we just want to understand that better and put it in a political economy framing. And really, in the political economy framing, we're interested in coming up with approaches that could anchor these regulations in the art of the possible rather than the ideological. So it's, it's a big ask, but we think an important topic. It is it's a really important topic because obviously values in trade policy is, is not new, but I think a real shift, and it's something that you touched on early on, is that when we talked about values, say, 10 years ago in trade policy, it was much more focused on the, the actual exchange of goods or services or intellectual property or, or money. And I think, as you said, it's how far those values are going beyond the direct exchange. So the values underpinning the exchange were efficiency and competition and maximising profits for companies. So as you said, now it's looking at things like human rights and climate policies are another area so it's how far we go in terms of pushing out trade policy to try and deal with these these other types of values or to incorporate these other types of values i must say when i was a young trade diplomat it was really drilled into me that we deal with the commercial and it's other policy instruments that should be used to deal with other policy objectives and that's really completely changed so this project is so timely to help us try and understand how that broadening of the values agenda and its incorporation into trade policy, where it's going to go and, and the implications of that. So referring to your particular project, it obviously has implications for the thinking on geopolitics currently going on in terms of climate change, for example. There are a number of policies being put in place by the US that seek to build their manufacturing capacity in green technology to ensure that they're independent of other countries when it comes to ensuring energy security. Are there other areas where this overlapping of values, trade policy and geopolitics is coming into play? Yeah, look, I can uh, jump in there, Prue. So as you mentioned, the geopolitics are a value-based trade is not necessarily a new thing. I think what's changed in recent years is the wider geopolitical climate, which informs and can transform how governments interact with one another and how they're willing to engage or disengage on these type of issues. So I think a bit of historical context is quite useful in understanding what's happening, we'll say, with US, EU, Australian trade policy and, and the value-based aspect. So if we go back to the 1980s, when China was first really trying to engage with the US, that was a period when geopolitically they were actually in an alliance to counteract the Soviet Union. And so in 1979, when Deng Xiaoping makes his trip to the US to meet President Carter, he's primarily seeking most favored nation status to really boost and, and kickstart China's reform and opening up period. So they're seeking this bilaterally with the United States. They're already in a kind of a geopolitical partnership against the USSR. And so while there are human rights issues at stake, there's a willingness to meet and discuss most favored nation. Now, the problem at this point in time is that there's the 
Jackson-Bannock Amendment in the US. And what this means is that for a communist or non-market state, they can only receive most favored nation if they're designated to be allowing freedom of immigration. So that's outward immigration with an E. So that's what the kind of criteria is for the US. And from Beijing's perspective, this is already seen as a, as a way of the US coercing it on its policy. They're seeing it also as a tool to pressure them for human rights and so forth. And they're not happy with it. But at the same time, they're trying to say, look, we do have immigration and we're willing to meet this criteria. So they actually are granted this most favored nation after that visit. And so it's the beginning of this partnership that we know in the next couple of decades booms. During the 1980s, this is annually reviewed by Congress. So there's a clear assessment on values here. Is there immigration allowed? Uh, what's the human rights status in China? And it's awarded un uncontroversially throughout the 80s. But of course, in 1989, we have the Tiananmen Square massacre, and then that really changes the debate in the US. Now, perhaps surprisingly, even though the debate in Congress gets very vociferous and there's often challenges to allowing most favored nation to continue, it does continue throughout the 90s. And we know also around this period of time, there is a broader geopolitical shift. The USSR collapses. There's an idea that we're kind of converging towards a single liberal market economy, world economy, and even politically, there's going to be convergence. And so the idea is engagement is the way to go, despite the issues that the tensions in the value-based aspects of the China and US relationship. And this is kind of more broadly in liberal democracies as well the idea of engagement. So that stood for quite a long period of time, right through the 2000s and 2010s. We know the issues didn't really disappear, but as I said, there was a different way of looking at those issues and a willingness to kind of let them simmer, put pressure that, you know, China, we do want you to improve your human rights record. We don't think it's good enough, but we're willing to play a long game and engage. But we know we're not in that world anymore. Just in April 2023, um, Jake Sullivan captures, he's the national security advisor for the Biden administration, captures the shift, right? And we know this has been ongoing for quite some time. The Trump administration really catalyzed this change in how the U.S. engages. But Sullivan's really trying to make a coherent discourse that captures the change. And so the speech has become quite well known. He uses the term the new Washington consensus to indicate that shift. And he starts off by saying the broader policy from the U.S. is now to deeply integrate domestic policy and foreign policy. Now, that integration already implies that there has to be a lot more values based aspects to trade, that the economic logic is not going to be pervasive, that leaving markets do what markets do is not no longer good enough. So and there are the very points he makes in that speech. He says that we're moving into a new world order. This moment demands that we forge a new consensus. This is the type of language. The idea of new industrial strategy, reshoring, fringe-shoring, promoting higher standards in labor, the environment, good governance, all these things are repeated throughout this speech. And most noteworthy, towards the end, he says, and I'll quote this, it's worth quoting, the international order that emerged after the end of the Second World War and then the Cold War were not built overnight. Neither will this one, end quote. Right? So they're already, they're being conscious that from the US perspective, and I don't think this is really a major difference with the EU, we're moving into a new order. 
The new trade policy will be very much informed by in domestic policy and the values of liberal democracies, and they will intertwine also with national security, which entails its own type of values, right? And so that's the kind of world we've moved into. And so that's dramatically changed the orientation. You change the orientation and the background assumptions and philosophy, and you get new trade policy. And that's what we've been seeing. Mm. But of course, the values that we're talking about at the moment are often identified as Western values, but the vast majority of countries out there don't necessarily have similar kinds of values, or at least don't prioritise the, the same kinds of values that Western countries are prioritising. Is your research throwing light on the impact of values-based trade policy on trade relationships with developing countries who might put greater priority on development values rather than these other broader Western-type values? Let me pick that up and then Nisha can add. So it hasn't been an explicit focus because in this project we are framing the issues in a political economy lens or through a political economy lens. But, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen clear signals of these kinds of trade-offs and dilemmas. For example, yesterday's news while we were in, well, we're in Germany, was that the EU-Mercosur talks have failed again. Now, that's not about human rights issues. That's more about agriculture. Obviously, Australians are familiar with that. But it's also about forestry and sustainability policies. And that's part of that broader level playing field agenda. And what's interesting about that is under the Bolsonaro administration, you could see why the EU was very reluctant to conclude that deal with Mercosur on these issues. But under Lula, he certainly has been reforming their approach to forestry management, but clearly not enough for the EU. So they've raised the bar. And that's led again to the deal being torpedoed. And then coming to our own region, just last week, the frontrunner for the Indonesian presidential election, Prabowo Subianto, remarked that we don't need Europe anymore. The, you know, essentially, he was saying they're just trying to impose all these values on us. But they're yesterday's people, we don't need them, basically. And that shows that when it comes to the geopolitical choices that many developing countries are making, they're not necessarily going to be railroaded, so to speak, into signing up to this level playing field agenda. But maybe one final observation, what makes this even more interesting, is that in the context of the UN, the United Nations, and the Sustainable Development Goals, all countries have signed up to the elimination, for instance, of child labor in supply chains as one of the core uh, sustainable development goals. So they've actually agreed to this framing, and you could argue, you could make a case, that the Europeans and the Americans are interpreting this in their own way, so to speak. I would just add to that, Prue, and say, so the world, we have this notion that the world has become relatively more diffuse in terms of trade power, in terms of political and military power, right, over time. And the West has relatively declined overall, even if still, we say, the group of liberal democracies in particular, have relatively declined. So without doubt, they've lost leverage to some extent compared to 20 years ago to be able to say, these are the conditions we want to trade on, take it or leave it. And then countries that are developing and poorer need to take it because they can't leave it. But now, of course, they have more options. And China's basic 
philosophy for international relations is that we don't interfere in your domestic system. Of course, we don't interfere as long as you're not interfering with us, but we won't impose any particular set of values on your domestic system, how you produce things, your rules and regulations. We leave that for you to decide. And if there's a win-win type trade relationship, we'll engage. Now, obviously, that's going to be quite appealing to countries, dictatorships, authoritarian regimes that don't have any particular issues with China bilaterally, then they're not going to get any issues in return. So it's a different model. China's offering something different. And that's certainly going to play into how trade evolves, I think, over the coming decade. At the same time, for liberal democracies, the domestic politics have changed. And there's a demand for these types of value-based regulations, rules, and uh, changes in free trade agreements that politicians have to respond to, right? So it's coming from political parties, but it's also coming from non-government organizations and also from consumers. So they have to respond. And I think that is going to change the options that countries have for who they're going to trade with. Some issues are red lines. And I think we also discussed in one of our policy briefs, you will have red line issues like forced labor, slave labor, you cannot trade with that. And I think you're going to have more gray zone, tricky issues to do with values in terms of countries' development statuses and the type of work conditions, maybe health and safety. They're not going to obviously be the same in a poor third world country as they are in a modern developed country. And so should that be a red line issue or should you accept that with economic development, certain standards and qualities of life improve, which are linked in some degree to various values and whether they're environmental and worker rights and so forth. That raises for me a really interesting question, and maybe it's a prior question that you may have looked at already in this research, but that is how much can we actually link trade with the particular policy outcomes that these value-based policies are trying to achieve? So, for example, often people blame unemployment in some sectors in some countries on trade. They claim that by having a trade agreement, there's been increased imports from a particular country because tariffs have been reduced. And as a result, the particular sector in that country has suffered as a result of cheaper imports and then people have been put out of work. But often you can make the same kinds of arguments that changes in technology similarly have impacts on employment. So I guess I'm just trying to use that example of where it's not necessarily the trade that's creating the unemployment. It can be changes in consumer preferences. It can be changes in technology. It can be changes in just trade flows as opposed to the material exchange process itself. So I'm just wondering, has your research been able to connect or show the connections between trade, the physical commercial exchange, and the impact of that commercial exchange on things like human rights and things like employment conditions? So if we are lucky enough to get funding for a second round, that would definitely be a focus of our research. But with this rather modest pot of funding that we've had from Universities Australia, in our case, that allows us to travel two ways, and then the rest is on our time, so to speak. So we are putting together a, a much more substantive proposal to do a real deep dive into those kinds of questions, so sectoral impacts, for instance, how that translates back into regulatory settings. So this would be a, 
multidisciplinary project. So you need the economic analysis to tell you what the problems are or the positive side of the story. And then the lawyers to tell you how to tweak your regulations so that you don't strangle the golden goose, so to speak. Also, you know, maybe just coming back to Australia briefly. So Australia's Modern Slavery Act has just been reviewed and there will be legislative changes, presumably in the coming weeks and months that flow from that. And the aim would be to tighten up the regulations, so bring more companies into the net to elevate the reporting standards, et cetera, et cetera. But even so, relative to, say, the German supply chain law or the EU's due diligence directive, Australia's is pretty flexible. And so it fits into that, I guess, sweet spot that we're interested in. So how do you nudge companies to draw turn from behavioral economics to change their supply chain practices without being heavy-handed in a way that undermines perhaps them, but particularly their suppliers unnecessarily. So that's the kind of trade-off and balance that we're interested in. And there would be a series of case studies, so developed country case studies, developing country case studies, and different sectors, etc. if we're successful in raising funding for it. I think that's a great plug for someone to come forward with a large pot of money for this important research. Because effectively, it really goes to the heart of the effectiveness of these measures too, wouldn't it? So, you know, you need to benchmark in a systematic way. and that, That's what we'd want to do. So, and I think on that question as well, I mean, looking forward, Prue, you, you could take, say, a case study like UFLPA, the Uyghur Forced Labour Prevention Act, which is one approach of being very targeted at a specific region where there's a large body of diversified research also and there's human rights issues there. So that's one approach versus we say something like German due diligence or that some of the EU legislation, which is not targeting specific regions or even the Australian Modern Day Slavery Act, which is just broad based and meant to capture the whole world. So which method works? What are the pros and cons of either approach? So there's some information starting to come through on Uffel Power, which has been enforced since 2021. And that took a very direct approach and said, look, pr pretty much going to ban all trade with Xinjiang, all imports coming into the US, based on a rebuttable presumption that there are human rights breaches in, in the region. And so the burden of proof for the rebuttal of that rests with the importers, not with the actual regulatory authority in the US. They don't need to do anything initially. They just say, nothing's coming in. If you wish to import, you make the case and give us the evidence and then we'll assess. So that's one approach that has pretty much prevented the majority of trade that was coming in from Xinjiang. So you could assess how that's worked. It's efficient in that sense of the proof, re reversing the burden of proof, but that has to be predicated on prior existing research that very strongly suggests that there are issues in the region at hand. And so if you don't have that large body of research, you may not be able to do that very targeted approach. And it's also kind of debatable whether a lot of particularly medium-sized and smaller countries would do that in the case of a country like China. Anyway, for fair reprisals, the US can take that approach. But for more broadly, I think that type of comparison going forward will be really important to this research to understand how does the broad-based approach work, something like the Modern Slavery Act with Australia, what kind of resources do you need to assess all your imports? Who's responsible for that? Well, how far are the companies responsible? Very in, in the German due diligence, 
legislation. Initially, the onus was so heavy on companies to assess their direct and indirect suppliers, uh, upstream and downstream outcomes, that there was a massive backlash and the firms and their supporting organizations said, this is just not possible. This is way overboard. And it got rolled back for the final legislation. So there's a lot of activity with this legislation, just different approaches being utilized internationally. And I think getting a good understanding and comparative assessment of those approaches will be really important. In some ways, understanding the effectiveness of these measures could be two ways. So one, the effectiveness of the public policy trying to achieve a non-commercial value-based policy objective, as opposed to the impact of these measures on business and the commercial impact. You know, trade policies traditionally focused on removing barriers to trade and making regulation easier for business to do what they do, whereas this is just the reverse of that. It's really imposing whole new layers of regulation on business. So looking at the impact of the regulation two ways, I think, would be really interesting. Obviously, you'd need far more funding to try and do that kind of analysis, but such an important topic and something someone should be funding. That's proof. We hope so. Yes. We could keep talking, but we try and keep these podcasts succinct. And both of you, I know, are suffering from colds at the moment. So we'll end the conversation there. This is our second last podcast for 2023. We'll have one more podcast, which will be a wrap up of 2023 trade policy developments and hot issues for 2023. But we will be back mid-January looking forward to what trade policy might hold for 2024. So on that note, I really want to thank you both for calling in so early in the morning with your colds. And I hope you're both feeling better soon. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for Trade Policy Decoded. Check out the Institute for International Trade and Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment websites for the recordings of all podcasts and to see what's coming up.